0: welcome to gleaming the tube the podcast where kevin and mike watch a film in which somebody rides a skateboard at some point finally a podcast where people talk about movies Hello, Michael. Hello, Kevin. So this week, we are discussing 2003's Stoked, The Rise and Fall of Gator. It's a documentary film directed by Helen Stickler, but former professional skateboarder Mark Gator-Rogowski, who rose to fame in the 1980s and is now serving life in prison for rape and murder.
1: What a bummer of a story.
0: (laughs) It's, I mean, and I do want to, I mean, I, I think that description sort of did it, but I do want to give a content warning because we will be discussing that aspect Yes, of of this probably at the end of the show because, like the movie, the movie is sort of about skateboarding in the 80s and early 90s and then becomes about this horrible crime Mugowski committed. I think if you don't want to hear about that stuff, you're probably safe and, and I'll maybe even give a warning when we when we're going to start talking about it just so if people who don't want to listen to that can can turn the podcast off. Yeah, because
1: it certainly is a... It's a pretty harsh subject matter.
0: Well, I mean, like, you watch the film and, you know, he seems sort of like a roguish asshole for the yes. first part, but you don't necessarily see him being capable of something like, like that.
1: Well, and that's the thing, is I think among those sort of mid to late 80s vert pros, that was certainly encouraged. It's like this very sort of, like, safe rebellion that within the context of the world of professional vertical skateboarding, these guys were encouraged to be these huge personalities. And it was when the industry shifted that a lot of these guys, they had no uh, agency to like figure out what to do with themselves next. And the thing is, is that when you watch it, it's a documentary that it's kind of something that happens over and over again in skateboarding on a couple of different levels, which is you give a kid a bunch of money and a bunch of attention for being able to do this incredibly athletic dangerous thing and when the whims of the skateboarding industry shift which i mean happen every two or three years they're marketing to a different group of 14-year-old boys they have no way to sort of deal with the attention shift away from to the newer younger different crowd gator is sort of the most extreme version of what can happen I mean, obviously, I think he had some personal issues that may have come to the forefront whether or not he was a professional skateboarder. One
0: thing I found interesting with the film was I don't think it ever goes into how he got the nickname Gator.
1: They don't focus a lot on his early life at all, whether they didn't know much about it or whether it Maybe they just didn't feel like it was like pressing into the story. But yeah, they, there's no mention as to how, like he kind of just arrives as a pro in the documentary. And it's interesting because a lot of these guys just sort of like arrived on the scene having grown up in the concrete skate parks in the 70s. Skate park footage that they show is the same skate park in the movie and It's Del Mar. It was one of the most famous skate parks in California. The documentary kind of arrives at him already you know, already a pro for for Gordon and Smith or GNS and then making the shift to vision.
0: So as someone who was into skateboarding in the 80s, like what was your perception of Gator at the time?
1: I made this observation when I was watching the movie that when I first got involved in skateboarding, the industry there was only a few companies the tastes shifted a lot slower so a person who had, had like a pro design on a skateboard those skateboards were available for years and years it wasn't like they changed graphics every 3 months like they do now and so the gator board with that with that spiraling geometric shape was was one of those things like there's actually a scene where Jason Jesse is going through the the you know an old catalog and you could see like some of those boards were available for years at a time so gator's name was just synonymous with pros it certainly helped that he had a memorable nickname later on in the 90s when street skateboarding i mean stacy pralt makes a ton of really excellent points in this documentary. One of the first really interesting points he makes is that there was like a very few guys who could really rise to among the ranks and vert skateboarding. It's this unbelievably specialized thing that kind of not everybody can do whether they, have access to those kinds of skate parks or half pipes there weren't many people who a had access to those things and then b had the ability to even drop in on one so if you were one of those guys who could pull big giant airs you know you were kind of a made man in that world so in that way I certainly was aware of who he was
0: like i i liked this documentary a lot, you know. I read some interviews with the director after. I liked uh, that it was self financed. I know how difficult it can be to self finance a documentary and actually get it done. So I was super impressed by that. Helen Stickler also has some ties to our hometown of Providence. I'm, uh, I believe she went to RISD, and one of her early films was about Shepherd Ferry.
1: Oh, I was unaware of
0: that. She did a film called Andre the Giant Has a Posse, and that was kind of before Shepherd Fairy really blew up. It was when he was just known for those stickers.
1: Was that when she was a, a student that she made that?
0: Shepherd Fairy also went to RISD, so it was probably either when or shortly after. And she had she had some short films, which I think I rented from Obsidian Video in downtown Providence back when they were the place that rented weird videos.
1: I thought the documentary was really, really good too. And like I I feel like it it operated, for me, for most of the documentary, what it was was a documentary about sort of that early to mid-80s boom in vert skating and how quickly the industry shifted. And that part was really fascinating and, frankly, a lot of fun to watch. I found myself sort of like laughing along with how sort of ridiculous some of, some of these guys sort of came off. And then also found myself kind of laughing at how a lot of the people that are mentioned in the in the movie went on to have some pretty troubled things happen to them later in life.
0: Well, it's like the, the early part, it's interesting, like how much what happens mirrors the cliches of it's this cool underground thing then a bunch of money comes in. Then suddenly people start to get a little bit of fame and then people start to reveal their troubles. It was a cautionary tale, especially for when people who are relatively young like get a lot of fame really quickly.
1: Within the, that world of vert skateboarding, it was really interesting to watch because from a marketing point of view, vertical skateboarding is really easily marketed. It's something not a lot of people can do. And you you know, it's a spectator sport. It's this perfect wooden U where you could sit people right in front of it and watch these guys toss themselves through the air. They said it. There was in every contest it was the same five guys who were at the top of the heap because there was so few people who could do it. But the guy who owned Vision Skateboards, Brad Dorfman. At first was sort of a genius. He was the guy who realized, well, all of these pros are kind of like cobbling together a look from thrift stores and from different cultures. So we're going to put a name on it and, and market an entire clothing line. And when it first came out, there was not a single skateboarder in the United States of America and probably the world who didn't own a Vision Streetwear t-shirt. Gator was the guy, he was. A, I, I made the observation that he was such a company man, you know what I mean? He wore the clothes, he did all the photo shoots, he was a really amazing professional skateboarder. And then before he really could see it coming, he became a kook. Because now all of a sudden he's dancing on Club MTV and the clothes got less and less relatable to the kids.
0: I noticed at one point he started to kind of rock a jaunty beret.
1: The Vision Streetwear beret was like kind of a a cool thing to have for three months in 1987.
0: Because I always think wearing a beret, that's a choice. It absolutely is a choice. If you're a dude and you're like, you know what? I'm going with the beret today.
1: The funny thing about the beret, I remember, you know, you would get the catalog, the California Cheapskates catalog, which like the Bible, you would like look through it and circle all the boards you wanted. And I also remember that... Among all of the pieces of accessory that you could buy, the Vision Streetwear beret was like a cheap entry thing. Like a pair of Vision shorts or a Vision Streetwear t-shirt might cost you 20 bucks. But if I remember correctly, the Vision Streetwear beret was like $5. It was made out of like paper material. But you would get one because like it was like that or Life's a Beach was the other thing that was was really, really, you know, a popular item because it was you never saw anybody who was wearing that stuff. So if you had it, you were kind of on the inside of this sort of new culture. Within two years, you had this whole crop of younger kids come in who just thought it was the lamest thing in the world. And if you're the guy who's on every page of every skate magazine wearing the Vision Streetwear beret, dancing on your skateboard, you're going to be the guy who's pretty lame. You
0: know, the stuff on the ramps, I was like, oh, this seems really cool. The club and TV scenes did not seem cool to me. I was excited when I realized that Downtown Julie Brown was in this movie because just say Julie, Julie Brown was in Clueless. And I feel like the podcast achieved like peak Julie Brown very early in our run.
1: I didn't notice that the other Julie Brown was in Clueless.
0: She was the gym teacher.
1: Wow. I completely missed that, Kevin. Oh, (laughs) For continuity's sake, I apologize. So we've doubled up on Julie Brown. I, that's, that's pretty
0: impressive. We're full up on Julie's Brown. Watching this movie also reminded me of something I read. Did you ever read Tom Shale's oral history of Saturday Night Live? I have not. Bill Murray says something really smart in it. Basically what's coming up is like when Eddie Murphy rocketed to stardom. And Bill Murray gets interviewed about it and he says, I don't care who you are. When you get famous, you become an asshole. It doesn't matter how much you think you can handle it. And I thought of that watching this movie.
1: You know the the, the point in the, the the film where he sort of changed his name to
0: Mark Anthony? I did notice that. I imagine anyone who was like already a skateboarding enthusiast must have thought that was the lamest thing ever.
1: And that's exactly the thing, is that it's like you're courting, you know, fame and admiration from basically kids. And kids can smell bullshit. You know, the minute you try to rebrand yourself skateboarding has this long history of being really really unforgiving to that kind of stuff there was a pro skater in the in sort of the mid-2000s who was uh levi's decided they were going to do a street brand division of levi's and they were trying to market jeans that were like half red and half black and one kid was filmed wearing a pair of, you know, he was on the team. They handed him a bunch of money to be one of the first pros on the v- Levi's team. And he did an ad where he was wearing half red and half black pants. And this was, I'm going to take a guess and say it was like maybe 2003 or four. And he's literally never not had to talk about it in every interview since then. He just, you know, it was a misstep. Somebody put him in the wrong clothes. And, you know, people like, I don't remember the red and black pants. And he's like, yeah, I, I know, man. I was like 17. And somebody said they were going to give me a bunch of money to win these pants. And yet that's the thing about skateboarding is that it's like nobody's going to hesitate to tell you that you've kind of pulled a lame move, you know? So Weird, because I
0: grew up in the punk rock scene where that was never an issue.
1: you were allowed to freely make mistakes and no one no one would ever call you call you out about it oh there are a lot of parallels to that it's like youth culture you know I think that one of the only faults I found in the movie I'm sorry if this is like a a departure from what I was talking about, but at one point they sort of edit the footage to make it look like he was absolutely useless as a street skateboarder. You know, when he was like having a hard time skating the curb and throwing his board and yelling. But in reality, like those pros were expected kind of to be able to do everything. He could ollie on the street and he could do a lot of those like early sort of elemental street tricks. It was just when the industry shifted almost to entirely street skateboarding that guys like him really did kind of get lost in the mix. But I mean, it was funny. They were showing that vision video and there was breakdancing, which reminded me of thrashing. I was like, you know, I thought to myself, man, breaking is a memory.
0: And I wanted to ask you because I didn't have the context you did for the street skating stuff, but it did make me wonder, was there anyone who was kind of a superstar on the vertical skating who managed to maintain that when the shift fully happened to street skating?
1: Absolutely, I will say this, and it's one of those sort of forgotten things in skateboarding because it has such a short memory. That a lot of those original Bones Brigade guys, so and this is this is another example of where Stacy Peralta was kind of the smartest boy in the room at that point. Where in in some of his later videos, the the two that were you know, hugely influential to me were "Ban This" and public domain. He he kind of made sure that the older guys were sort of in the mix with the younger guys. It was a lot of uh, like montages of like younger kids, like Ray Barbie, skateboarding together with older guys like Lance Mountain. Some of those like early '90s videos, you have guys like Steve Caballero, who by that point, it's hard to know exactly how old he was because Steve Caballero was very young when he first came into fame in skateboarding, but there's there's scenes where Steve Caballero it's it's affectionately referred to in this day and age as street cab because Steve Caballero was like able to hang in there and start doing tricks on handrails, which handrails were kind of, that was like sort of the the, the the real proven ground. If you could get up on a handrail and slide or grind down it, that meant you could sort of still have a place in, in street skateboarding. And there's footage of Steve Caballero, Tony Hawk, Uh, started a little after he left Palo Peralta, started a company called Birdhouse. And his, the first really low budget videos they made, it's Tony Hawk doing tricks on the street, ollieing downstairs and getting onto handrails and stuff. So some of those guys really could transition. The history of skateboarding is just like anything else. It doesn't play out perfectly cleanly, but like... A lot of those guys, like, they had the name brand recognition that they still had a place in skateboarding if they had just sort of, like, transitioned to approaching skateboarding in a different way. And I think the guys who did the worst job of transitioning were, A, the guys who didn't really have somebody looking out for them, like Christian Assoy, who ended up in prison for smuggling crystal meth and you know they they mentioned jeff phillips who committed suicide in the very early 90s and and gator who obviously had some seriously other difficulties but it's when the stare counts got higher that a lot of those guys are like okay i'm almost 30 now and i can't (laughs) you know i can't do some of this stuff
0: yeah and i think when you're younger you're hungrier for that you know i have to relearn this all over again and like you know now i have a mortgage on my right. giant hexagonal house.
1: Well, and, the, and that's the other interesting thing is that when you look at just like the, the, all of this history is happening, you know, over the course of only three or four years. The big seismic shift, I think, was that there was a point where doing an Ollie on the street, it wasn't a premium And again, this is only from my point of view. This might not be completely accurate. This is just my perception of things was there was a time when an Ollie on the street was really just a, a way to help you get from point A to point B. And once people started applying the physics of an Ollie, which is a trick where you make your board jump without you grabbing onto it just by the use of friction and force. Once people started using that trick to get themselves up onto higher things, and and like I said, the handrail as well. Like handrails handrails took skateboarding from something that was like, you know, you were on a ramp and you were in full pads and you were trying these dangerous tricks, but there was at least sort of like a curvature of the ramp would ease your fall in some way. And once people started getting up onto handrails, that it changed Everything. In a way, the stakes became much, much, much higher. And a lot of these guys had already kind of aged out at that point.
0: Now, I want to transition to talk about like the final third of the movie. You know, if if you don't want to hear about this stuff, next week we'll talk about something stupid where Gator murders Jessica Bergston. And one of the things is I feel like for the first two-thirds of the movie, Helen Stickler does a really good job kind of paralleling Gator's career with skateboarding as a whole and sure. then obviously I think looping in the crime and the aftermath of the crime is a very difficult needle to thread and I don't think it's 100% succeeds but I also think like you can't do this movie without telling that story one of the subtexts I found interesting with a lot of the interviews with the professional skateboarders that Gator interacted with was no one really comes out and says it but you do not get the sense that any of these guys have a lot of affection for him.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely not. I think that their affection for him started waning. You know, they they talk about his drinking becoming a problem. You know, they talk about that trip to Europe where it was all sort of fun and games. I mean, these were essentially teenagers on a trip to Europe, sort of just let loose, you know, on the European continent. And you get the sense that, you know, at a certain point it went from being fun to... A legitimate problem I, I think you get the sense that once he changed his name and was trying to like gain fame is almost like a, you know they mentioned he was trying to be an actor they mentioned that he goes through all these different phases and when by the time you get to the phase where he's sort of found Christ I think that at that, that point they were just sort of fed up with what they assumed was just sort of the next shapeshift that he was going through and so by the time you get to the the acts of violence, like the thing that happened in Australia. I think by that point, they he was sort of persona non grata um, um, amongst a lot of those professional skateboarders.
0: I think it's a hard movie to land once you bring that element into it, because it sort of ends on this jokey interview with Jason Jesse that tonally feels a little out of place. And it's interesting hearing like the phone interviews with right. Gator talking about it. I mean, I, I say now, but this movie was made in you know the, the early 2000s
1: it's it's hard to talk about it's it's yeah. like it's very it's very difficult because the nature of what he did you could tell a lot of those guys like that Jason Jesse you know he he was a little younger and really looked up to that guy and how do you even watch a defense mechanism kick in with a lot of these guys where they're like it's so heinous that it, he goes from being a troubled alcoholic who found the Lord to this unbelievably violent monster. The fact that he threatened to do to his girlfriend, Brandy, exactly what he ended up doing to the girl, Jessica, who was the victim of his crime is really, really hard to wrap your brain around. You know, at some point, it was all just innocent. I'm an asshole with too much money and I'm 19 years old. I don't think anybody knew how to deal with it. When you hear those phone interviews, it's difficult because at first it sounds like he's has a lot of remorse for what he did but you get the sense that he's still mostly talking about himself and when the parole hearings come up i think to this day he still doesn't fully maybe he can't fully grasp the massiveness of how you know ru- you know bad what he did was i think that there's a lot of people who just can't imagine setting him free there's this really 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 sad point where he's talking about how he knew he needed mental help but because he was involved in being born again they didn't put any stake in therapy and that was almost like an opportunity he missed to like try to start to get some help
0: and when all this happened how was it how was it reported in the skateboard world was this like the rumor mill or were there like articles in thrasher magazine
1: I remember reading about it in Thrasher, but because, I mean, you know, Thrasher is a skateboarding magazine and, and and its editorial style and content is, you know, pretty lighthearted. I wish that I could find somebody with like a, an archive of back issues of Thrasher so that we could uh, authenticate this. But in my mind, I remember when Thrasher reported on it and it seemed like they almost reacted to it the way a lot of the people in the interview reacted, which was, oh, that washed up, kook weirdo gator murdered a girl and that's gross and lame and fuck him it's interesting because that's sort of the feeling that remains in the world of skateboarding i think i remember them bringing up that he had been denied for parole a couple of years prior and that basically the the editorial take on it was good fuck that guy forever and even you know every now and then his name comes up And it's, it's, it's almost like a perfect wrap up of the documentary, which is, yeah, that guy used to be super cool and was a really great skateboarder. And then he got lame and did this unspeakable thing. So he's not even considered in the world of skateboarding anymore, you know, which is, which is interesting because, you know, I will say this, the bigger and more popular that skateboarding gets The core of skateboarding's market is still sort of teenage boys who have a tendency to side. Like, you know, recently a professional skateboarder was accused of sexual assault, and it got pretty ugly in some of the message boards with kids basically defending him and blaming the victim. But with Gator, it's sort of 100% across the board. Like, everybody just doesn't even consider him anymore. Man, I...
0: I It's a tough subject, Kevin. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's, uh, I mean, we, uh... I need something lighthearted next week, I think.
1: Yeah. It's really tough. Like I, you know, literally as I'm speaking, I'm like trying to speak in this sort of measured way because I don't want it to be perceived even for a second that I, you know, have anything but sort of like contempt for, for what happened. And it's just tough because like, you know, it, the, the rest of the documentary really is this really interesting sort of time capsule with just this like terrible pin through the middle of it that's just hard to comprehend.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't, like, there's a little bit at the beginning, but the documentary doesn't do a lot of foreshadowing in terms of what happens. All right, so next week, Police (laughs) Academy 4.
1: You know what? I, I would love to talk about Police Academy 4 with you and its entire lack of skateboarders murdering
0: people. Yeah, and it's also, I think, the most requested movie we've had.
1: You know, I'll, I'll save it for next week, but I will say that in terms of impact, the two-minute skateboarding montage that happens in Police Academy 4 had massive, massive, massive effect on people throughout America, including a very young Mike Brusso, who thought it was the best thing that he had ever seen in his life at 14 or however old I was.
0: Well, thanks everyone for listening, especially through the uh, final bit of this podcast, which covered some... Some heavier stuff than we're used to, but next week, we promise things will be a bit more lighthearted.
1: I'm absolutely looking forward to it, Kevin.
0: Thank you for listening. Our website is gleamingthetube.net. We're on Facebook at GleamingTheTube, the Tube, Twitter and Instagram at Gleam the Tube, and our email is gleamingpod at gmail.com. Production assistance by Liam Gray. Music by Kissing Contest. Skateboarding is not a crime.